Romans Untangled, the podcast where we take a seemingly difficult book of the Bible and untangle it so that we can enjoy its beauty. Season 2, Episode 3, God as Just and Justifier, Romans 3, 25b to 26, the second part of verse 25 all the way through 26. In America, as, I, as I've talked to folks here over the years, uh, we struggle with the idea of how in the world can a loving and merciful God ever punish anyone uh, on Judgment Day, ever look at them and send anyone ever to hell? It, it just seems completely unfair. However, in the Bible, the question that, that those writers are dealing with, and especially the Apostle Paul, is a little bit different. The, the question they're dealing with is, how can a just God, a God who is the ultimate judge of everything, actually look at sinners and declare them to be not guilty? That is at the very heart of what we're going to be looking at today on Romans Untangled. Thanks for joining us again. My name is Pastor Steve Treichler. I'm the senior and founding pastor of Hope Community Church in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul. Glad that you're with us. At the time of this recording, it is freezing outside. We're in the midst of winter up here, but I am here in my fancy multi-dollar studio (laughs) in my basement with the fireplace cranked up, and I'm snug as a bug in a rug. And I I hope wherever you are today, you are safe and that uh, you are also warm and feeling that. This season, we are going to be hitting one theological word, one new theological word every single episode, just as a way to kind of teach you some of the language that is used by Christian theologians over the years. This week is the authority of Scripture, and I'm actually going to teach you maybe four words that maybe you've not heard of before, or maybe you've heard, but you're not sure exactly what they mean, exactly what Why theologians do this, I don't know, but they put very complicated words to simple meanings. And it is my passion to bring those down so that everybody can understand them. So let's go after these four different things as we look at the authority of Scripture, the Bible. How does it have a meaning in our lives? The first one is the word canon, C-A-N-O-N, just one N, doesn't mean something you shoot. It actually means, literally, it means read or measuring stick. And it is the idea of what is in the Bible. How did we end up with the 66 books of the of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New? How did that come together? And there's great books on this. I'm not going to go through all of that. The basic simple concept is that when the Christians came along, they adopted all of the Old Testament. So they took all of the Jewish Old Testament. That was their uh, Old Testament as well. And the New Testament, they were books that they had all come together and decided these were written by the apostles or they were people that were closely associated with the apostles. If you're looking for a little bit more um, heady, not terrible, it's 120 pages. It's the best book out there, I think, on where did our New Testament come from? Is it really a, a good source? Is it reliable? It's F.F. Bruce's The New Testament Documents Are they reliable? Like I say, it's 120 pages. And if that's kind of your jam, I'd encourage you to take a look at that. But the word canon means what's in our Bible. And there's other writings that maybe like if you were raised Catholic or something, that would, they the Apocrypha, it's called, the early Christians said these are useful, but they're not scripture. And there's a lot of writings actually like that. Um, And so they just didn't make it into the Bible. It's not that they're bad necessarily, uh, but they didn't land in the Bible. Second big word here from under this concept of the authority of Scripture is inerrancy. Inerrancy means basically simply this. The Bible is truthful in all that it asserts to be true. 
Okay. So I know some people are like, wait a minute now. All I got to do is find one error and then the whole thing falls apart. And that would be true in one sense if it's something that the Bible asserts as true. For instance, to give you a good example here, to, the, the simple one is if you look at the gospel accounts, you see that in one gospel it talks about uh, the rooster's going to crow one time before Peter denies Christ. And this another account, it talks about the rooster crowing three times. Well, which is it? There's an error here, so one of them has to be wrong. The the, the thing that the rooster crows is actually a metaphor for, for mourning, right? Before mourning, you will deny me three times. That's what it's asserting. In fact, the way they recorded history, um, you know, I don't even care if there wasn't a rooster at all. The, the, it, we have to let them record history the way that they want to record history. Same with counting people in the Old Testament. Well, look at this. This one's, you know, this one says 5 million. This one says 5,273,000 and, you know. They round it same way we would do. It, it, it's it, the way they recorded history. So when you look at this, you have to say, "Now wait a minute. Now the, the, these are not. They're they're telling us something, and they're asserting things to be true, and therefore it is inerrant uh, in that sense." Inspiration. Next word. Inspiration means how was the Bible written? It wasn't dictated. Not every word was like their hand was a robot and they did that. They wrote it in the personality and the style and the culture um, and, the, and, and just what's going on within their own hearts and lives at that time of the author. But that's the author, small a, but there's a capital A author, the Holy Spirit, that is working in them to uh, write down these things and they're being guided along by the Holy Spirit. I like to think of it like a sailboat with a wind, right? And the wind is going a certain way and the the ship kind of goes maybe a little bit of zigzag here and there, but ultimately it gets where the wind is blowing it. And that's kind of the analogy here. And the last one is, so we did canon, which just means what's in the Bible. What are those? That's the canon of scripture. Inerrancy, Bible's true. It's true in all that asserts to be true. Inspiration is how the, the authors were filled by the Holy Spirit so they could write these down. And the last one is genre, G-E-N-R-E. Maybe you're familiar with this term. We're very familiar with this term in, in just genre of like, if you're going to watch a movie, it could be a comedy, it could be a drama, it could be a mystery, it could be a documentary, it could be a sci-fi, it could be a rom-com, right? You, you, you kind of, what, what do you want to watch then? I want to watch, uh, you know, a sci-fi or I want to watch a documentary or something. And it kind of prepares you for what you're going to be watching. And that's exactly what's going on in scripture. There are different types of writings. History, there are um, there, the historical writings. There's poetry writings, there's laments, there's prophetic writings, there's apocalyptic writings, there's most of the New Testament is letters that are written from one person to another. There's the gospel accounts. We have different styles of writing. That doesn't mean that they're, you know, uh, one's better than the other, just different ways of going about getting the ideas across. So all of these things makes this make scripture authoritative in our lives and we can we can trust it. Those words are helpful uh, beginnings on your journey to understanding more of that. Okay, let's get into the passage for today. Romans 3, 25, 25b, whenever you say that, by the way, that just means the second half of the verse uh, to 26. But I want to read it in context. We've been looking at this uh, from Romans 21. Uh, 3.21, so, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift 
by his grace, through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That's all what we've done so far in previous weeks. Uh, last week, we looked at this whole idea of why did God uh, publicly uh publicly display Jesus on the cross. Why did that have to happen? And we looked uh, at that last week. Here's the, here's the passage I want to talk about this week. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." Okay, like I've said before, it's helpful if you have a Bible in front of you, maybe different translations. I'm reading from the New American Standard here. Uh, the other ones are pretty similar here on this. Um, so let's just dive into to this and, and, and hit this right at the beginning. If it says here, this was to demonstrate his... Now, if you just closed your eyes and, and, and you didn't know what was coming next, you'd look at all of Romans and it talks about sinful humanity and God's desire to, to move into that and to remedy the fact and you would think that the next word would be this he God did all this to demonstrate his what? Well, his mercy, right? His mercy, his love, his his compassion, right? You that's what you would think the next word would be. And the word isn't. The word is righteousness. Now, the word righteousness in scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, is the exact same word as the word justice. So what's going on here is he says he did this to demonstrate his justice. Now, and you got to go, what? Uh, what's, what Paul's wrestling with here is um, when, when, when he goes on to say, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Paul's actually struggling with when a person sins even one time, why doesn't God immediately bring judgment? And and those, according to Romans 1, all sin is, is slapping a holy creator in the face and exchanging it, worshiping something else, something of creation. And he says that's, that's worthy of death. And why doesn't God just wipe us out immediately every time we sin? Or, of course, it would only be one time because you'd be dead, right? <laughs> so that is not where the typical 21st century person, especially Americans, would go for, for problem, or excuse me, for Paul, it's, it's, it's the problem that God doesn't destroy the world immediately. His righteousness or his justice is at stake. And so the, the holiness of God, the, the rightness, the, the, the fact that he's a just judge is at stake for Paul here. And he says he has to do all this in order to, to, uh, to display his righteousness, that he's just. Now, that's that may be a shock to us in modern ears. That's not the way we'd think. We'd want it. We'd want Paul to write the uh, write the book of Romans the way we want to read it. But the reality is, is Paul wrote it the way he wanted to write it, and it's it's something that we have to be okay with and say, Paul, what are you trying to teach me here? And so, one of the phrases I love to say is that the Bible is not written to you. The Bible is not written to you, but it is written for you. So in other words, it, I, I can't necessarily put my the way I want it to be into the passage. I've got to let the passage speak to me, and then I can go, oh, okay. That's maybe not what I'm struggling with today, but okay, I can, I can, I can, I can hear that, right? And that's very important. We move on to verse 26. He says, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So it's very important to Paul. He repeats it, right? 
And he says then, so that, and the word so that, we talked about linking words in the first in the first uh, season of important things. So that means the result or the purpose of why he does something. God, he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. Let's unpack this a little bit. First thing, number one, God must be just. Sin must be punished. God cannot just look at humanity and say, ah, not a big deal. I'm just going to give you a mulligan on all those years of, of sin and, and all. I'm just, we're just going to forget about it. He can not do that. So it puts God in a difficult place. It's like his righteousness and sinful humanity paints God a, a, a bit in a corner in that he has to respond with justice upon the sin that is there. There is a way to solve it, and it's only one way, and that's for God himself to take the punishment. But it's very important that, you know, Jesus does not become a sinner. He becomes sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God or the justice of God. In other words, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. That's how it works, so that when we're in him, he's taken the the punishment for us, and now we become the justice of God. But it's also important to know that the justice of God has to apply to the Son as well. Jesus cannot be killed by the Father. That'd be the most heinous crime ever, right? Because he's a perfectly 100% innocent person. He must be killed by humans, and Jesus himself cannot aid that. He cannot give false testimony. He cannot, he has to somehow orchestrate this thing. And if you read the trials of Jesus in the Gospels, you see how much of a genius Jesus is to ultimately go along with getting crucified without it being at all his fault. Another point, Jesus cannot go unwillingly. He can't go unwillingly. He That, that, that can't happen. It is not his preference to go. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But if you read from John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, it says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my father. In other words, the father does not command the son to do this. As some people have said, they don't like this doctrine of Jesus took the wrath of God on the cross for us to bear our sin. They don't like that. And so they'll say, that's not what happened at the cross. It was just a sign of love that why Jesus did this. And of course, love is part of it. I don't debate that. But to take away the idea that the father poured his wrath upon the son, they, they call that divine child abuse. And it actually would be if God forced Jesus upon the cross. But as you remember, Jesus in the garden, Jesus in the garden, uh, he, he, he asks the father, uh, hey, if this cup could be taken from me, let's do it. And the way that that, what that question actually means is, is there any other way that you can both be just and that we can be merciful? So that's the second thing. The first thing is God has to, has to be just. He can't not be just. He will cease to be God. 
but God desires to be merciful. He doesn't need to be merciful. The angels that fell don't get any redemption plan, but he desires to be merciful. And as a result, there's this genius plan called the cross. And at the cross, this is the genius of it. The unbelievable justice of God meets the unbelievable mercy of God in a collision, wham, like two trains coming together. And it hits all at Jesus Christ. So, with all that said, what actually happened at the cross? What, what is this suffering that Christ went through for us? Now, I don't do this very often in this podcast, but for the remainder of our time today, I want to just read from um, what I think is one of the thing, best things that Wayne Grudem has ever written. I'm going to guess that this originally was a journal article or something because it reads a little bit like that, but it's out of his systematic theology, his 2004 version um, of Wayne Grudem's systematic theology, an introduction to Bible doctrine. You can find it on page 571 to 577. I'm not going to read all of it, but I want to read, he talks about what the sufferings of Christ were for us. So let me go through a few things here. I'm just going to read this from Wayne Grooms. He talks about the pain of the cross. The sufferings of Jesus intensified as he grew near, as he drew near to the cross. He told his disciples of something of the agony he was going through when he said, quote, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, unquote. It was especially on the cross that Jesus' sufferings for us reached their climax, for it was there that he bore the penalty for our sin and died in our place. Scripture teaches us that there were four different aspects of the pain that Jesus experienced. Number one, physical pain and death. We do not need to hold that Jesus suffered more physical pain than any human being has ever suffered, for the Bible nowhere makes that claim. But we still must not forget that death by crucifixion was one of the most horrible forms of execution ever devised by man. Many readers of the Gospels in the ancient world would have witnessed crucifixions and thus would have had a painfully vivid mental picture upon reading the simple words, quote, and they crucified him, Mark 14, 24. A criminal who was crucified was essentially forced to inflict upon himself a very slow death by suffocation. When a criminal's arms were outstretched and fastened by nails to the cross, he had to support most of the weight of his body with his arms. The chest cavity would be pulled upward and outward, making it difficult to exhale in order to be able to draw a fresh breath. But when the victim's longing for oxygen became unbearable, he would have to push himself up with his feet, thus giving more natural support to the weight of his body, releasing some of the weight from his arms, and enabling his chest cavity to contract more normally. By pushing himself upward in this way, the criminal could fend off suffocation, but it was extremely painful because it required putting the body's weight on the nails holding the feet and bending the elbows and pulling upward on the nails driven through the wrists. The criminal's back, which had been torn open repeatedly by a previous flogging, would scrape against the wooden cross with each breath. Thus, the first century um, uh, historian Seneca spoke of a crucified man, quote, drawing the breath of life amid long drawn out agony, unquote. A, a, a physician writing in the Journal of American Medicine Association, Medical Association in 1986, explained the pain that it would have been experienced in death by crucifixion. And he says this, 
Adequate exhalation required lifting the body by pushing up on the feet and by flexing the elbows. However, this maneuver would plate the entire weight of the body on the tarsals and would produce searing pain. Furthermore, flexation of the elbows would cause rotation of the wrists uh, about the iron nails and cause fiery pain along the damaged median nerves, muscle cramps, and parathesis, I think that's how you say it, of the outstretched and uplifted arms would add to the discomfort. As a result, each respiratory effort would become agonizing and tiring and lead eventually to asphyxia. Second thing he endured, the pain of bearing sin. More awful than the pain of physical suffering that Jesus endured was the uh, psychological pain of bearing the guilt for our sin. In our own experience as Christians, we know something of the anguish we feel when we know we have sinned. The, The weight of guilt is heavy on our hearts. And there's a bitter sense of separation from all that is right in the universe, an awareness of something that is in a very deep sense ought not to be. In fact, the more we grow in holiness as God's children, the more intensely we feel this instinctive revulsion against evil. Now, Jesus was perfectly holy. He hated sin with his entire being. The thought of evil, of sin, contradicted everything in his character. Far more than we do, Jesus instinctively rebelled against evil. Yet in obedience to the Father and out of love for us, Jesus took on himself all the sins of those who would someday be saved, taking on himself all the evil against which his soul rebelled, created deep revulsion in the center of his being. All that he hated most deeply was poured out fully on him. Third aspect of suffering was abandonment. The physical pain of crucifixion and the pain of taking on himself the absolute evil of our sins was aggravated by the fact that Jesus faced this pain alone. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, he confided something of his agony to them. My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. From Mark 14, verse 34. This is the kind of confidence one would disclose to a close friend, and it implies a request for support in his hour of greatest trial. Yet as soon as Jesus was arrested, Scripture teaches us from Matthew chapter 26, all his disciples forsook him and fled. But far worse than desertion by even the closest of human friends was the fact that Jesus was deprived of the closeness of the Father that had been the deepest joy of his heart for all his earthly life. When Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Matthew 27, 46, he showed that he was finally cut off from the sweet fellowship of his heavenly Father that had been the unfailing source of his inward strength and the great and the element of greatest joy in a life filled with sorrow as jesus bore our sins on the cross he was abandoned for a season by the heavenly father who is of purer eyes than to behold evil from habakkuk chapter 1 he faced the weight of the guilt of millions of sins alone and then the fourth aspect of this grudem goes on to say this 
Yet more difficult than these three previous aspects of Jesus' pain was the pain of bearing the wrath of God upon himself. As Jesus bore the guilt of our sins alone, God the Father, the mighty creator, the Lord of the universe, poured out on Jesus the fury of his wrath. Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against sin, which God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. Romans 3.25 tells us that God put forward Christ as a propitiation, a word that means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end, and in so doing changes God's wrath toward us unto favor. Paul tells us that, quote, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies him, or our, our translation says that he is just and the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus, Romans three twenty four, excuse me, 25 to 26. God had not simply forgiven sin and forgotten about the punishment in generations past. He had forgiven sins and stored up his righteous anger against those sins. But at the cross, the fury of all that stored up wrath against sin was unleashed against God's own Son. Three other crucial passages in the New Testament refer to Jesus' death as a propitiation. Hebrews 2, 1 John 2, and, and 1 John 4. And we looked at this last week. Every one of those passages talks about it being a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God thus making God propitious or favorable towards us. With this in mind, we are now better to understand Jesus' cry of desolation, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Matthew 27. The question does not mean, Why have you left me forever? For Jesus knew that he was leaving the world, that he was going to the Father, and Jesus knew that he would rise again, and it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Hebrews 12, 2 tells us. Jesus knew that he could still call God my God. This cry of desolation is not a cry of total despair. Furthermore, why have you forsaken me does not imply that Jesus wondered why he was dying. He had said the Son of Man also came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, from Mark 10, 45. Jesus knew that he was dying for our sins. Jesus' cry here is a quotation from Psalm 22, verse 1, a psalm in which the psalmist asks why God is so far from helping him, why God delays in rescuing him. And here's the quote from Matthew, or excuse me, Psalm 22, 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but you but find no rest. Yet the psalmist was eventually rescued by God, and his cry of desolation turned into a hymn of praise at the end of the psalm, verses 22 to 31 of Psalm 22. Jesus, who knew the words of Scripture as his own, knew well the context of Psalm 22. In quoting this psalm, he's quoting a cry of desolation that also has implicit in it, in its context, an unremitting faith in the God who ultimately will deliver him. Nevertheless, it remains a very real cry of anguish because the suffering has gone on so long and no release in sight. With this context for the quotation, it is better to understand the question, why have you forsaken me, 
as meaning, why have you left me for so long? This is the sense it has in Psalm 22. Jesus, in his human nature, knew he would have to bear our sins, to suffer, and to die. But in his human consciousness, he probably did not know how long this suffering would take. Yet to bear the guilt of millions of sins, even for a moment, would cause the greatest anguish of soul. To face the deep and furious wrath of an infinite God, even for an instant, would cause the most profound fear. But Jesus' suffering was not over in a minute, or two, or ten. When would it end? Could there be yet more weight of sin, yet more wrath of God? Hour after hour it went on. The dark weight of sin and the deep wrath of God pour over Jesus in wave after wave. Jesus at last cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why must this suffering go on so long? Oh God, my God, will you ever bring it to an end? Then at last, Jesus knew his suffering was nearing completion. He knew he had consciously borne all the wrath of the Father against our sins. For God's anger had abated, and the awful heaviness of sin was being removed. He knew that all that remained was to yield up his spirit to his heavenly Father and die. With a shout of victory, Jesus cried out, It is finished. Then with a loud voice, he once more cried out, Father, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he voluntarily gave up the life that no one could take from him, and he died. As Isaiah had predicted, he poured out his soul to death and bore the sin of many. God saw, quote, the fruit of the travail of his soul and was satisfied, Isaiah 53, 11. The death of Jesus Christ, that's the end of the quote, by the way. The death of Jesus Christ is the most, at the exact same time, the most scandalous thing that ever happened and the most beautiful thing that has ever happened. What it screams to you that there's a a God who will not relinquish his justice and at the cost of of his very own son will show that love for you. If you go around this week and you wonder in the midst of everything you're going through, does God actually love me? Think of Romans 5 verse 8. I know that's coming up in in a few weeks here, but Romans 5 verse, verse 8, and it says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us, the one who is just and the justifier, loves you, cares for you, is that much of an incredible genius for you. May that absolutely and fundamentally change us this week. Next week, we'll look at how Paul ends this. I love how he ends it. After you really walk through this, he then asks, where then is boasting? (laughs) It's such a great question. We're going to look at that issue next week. Where then, in the light of being a follower of Jesus and having all this done for you, where then is boasting? I hope you have a fantastic week. We look forward to seeing you next time on Romans Untangled.